Um, because it is anticipation of that very act and it's still marking the time as, as beginning the new month very shortly thereafter. So, yeah, holy time is different. Uh, sundown to sundown when it's holy time and no question about it. But a, a new moon is not, as I see it, a Sabbath. I've had different people try to prove that it is. But I've never, never seen enough scriptural evidence to support that it is a Sabbath. <clears throat> In fact, it's, it's nebulous enough that if I tried to preach it, you'd have people on both sides of that fence. So, I don't like to acclaim something as something that God requires unless I can clearly see that it's something He would have us do from Scripture. And I don't see that in terms of the new moon celebration. Yes, it is a marking of time. It tells us when God's months begin and we can keep the holy days based on uh, when the new moons fall and then when the holy days fall in conjunction with them. So anyway, this Sunday night, 7.30, tomorrow night, we have the fifth month of the year beginning in God's calendar. Also, it may be a little bit early, but uh, the fast of the fifth month is coming up on Wednesday, the 2nd of August. That's a little over a week away, but sometimes it's good to know a little ahead of time that there's a fast coming up. So Wednesday, August 2nd, is the fast of the fifth month of Zechariah 7 and 8. I know it's not too long now until the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm already beginning to think about it a little bit. Uh, we're almost at the end of July, a little over a week left, August, and then Trumpets uh, comes on the 21st of September. So we're about two months away from Trumpets today. Not too long ahead of us. And who knows what this long, hot summer is going to bring. Anyway, let's get back to the book of Ecclesiastes. We came down to chapter 6. <coughs> And recalling that basically what Solomon is doing is writing a perspective of human life, human existence on this earth. What it amounts to, what it doesn't amount to, what it's designed for. And we'll see a little bit today about how God has made it in such a way that it is not a bed of roses. Well, may have some roses, but... I've noticed roses all have thorns, so uh, we'll see some of that. Anyway, in chapter 6, he says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. So here's something that, in, uh, in the daylight, in the sunshine, in the open air, something he's seen and observed, and it's common among men. Common means it's there. It's there everywhere. Rare means you hardly ever see it. Common means it's an everyday thing. A man to whom God has given riches, <coughs> wealth, and honor, so that he wants nothing for his soul of all that he desires. So, you've been given pretty much everything a man could desire or want. Uh, pretty well blessed. Yet God gives him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eats it. This is a vanity, a temporary thing, a futility, and it is an evil disease. Now, 
how do you class an evil disease? An evil disease is one that causes a great deal of discomfort, of pain, maybe nausea, uh, possibly death. So he says, you might be given all kinds of blessings on this earth, and then you're going to die, or you're going to get sick, or something's going to happen where you lose it, and you won't have the power to enjoy it. So it's just a temporary thing. And people spend so much time and energy and effort uh, trying to accrue things, trying to have what they want. And sometimes God has even blessed people. I think that's what this is saying. Uh, And yet even those who get blessed don't always find complete joy and happiness in this life. Uh, they, They can't truly enjoy what they have. You might even say that of a New Testament Christian. God calls us out of this world and gives us the greatest blessings that anyone has ever received, that is, a knowledge of His truth and the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. And you would think that that would give you an immediate upgrade to utter happiness and joy and never have any more trouble again because you have the truth of God and the Spirit of God. And you know, a lot of us, when we were first being converted, thought that's what we had in the way that it would be. We were so excited about all we were learning that we had to tell all our friends and relatives who glared balefully at us and even dressed us down for it and told us we were crazy. So there's your first reward of being blessed by God, is told you're nuts. And then we find that we have to grow. So, the greatest blessings that God can give us on the face of this earth cannot truly be enjoyed in the way that we might anticipate they could. Because he goes on to tell us in many scriptures that if we try to live God's way in this evil and ungodly godly society... We will have persecution, we'll have trouble, we'll have trials, tests, chastenings, and difficulties of all kinds. So, even though we have great blessing, spiritual riches, wealth, and honor that come from God, uh, anything really in that sense you could desire, but it's difficult for us to truly enjoy life in its utter fullness in this society. Now, he does say in the kingdom, the world tomorrow, no more pain, no more sorrow, death, suffering of any kind. So it's something that we aspire to, but not something that we have yet achieved. And from a purely physical standpoint here, not even considering the spiritual, if we are given blessings, uh, they're temporary, they'll be taken away. So it's vanity, or or temporary is another word for vanity. And it becomes an evil disease because it all ends in death. No matter what blessings you've had, you're still going to die and push up posies. So he goes on to explain it a little bit. If a man beget a hundred children and live many years, so that the days of his years be many, and his whole soul be not filled with good, And also that he have no burial, I say that an untimely birth is better than he. 
So he's describing someone who has lived a long, long time. A hundred kids is a lot, even for uh, Mormons or Catholics. That's a lot of kids. But he's, he's pushing it out there because he says, no matter. If you don't have a burial, well, what does that mean? That means that you've lived, you've had that many kids, lived a long, long time, and nobody cares enough about you to give you a proper burial. Maybe they'll lay you out and let the coyotes eat you or throw you in a hole, maybe. Uh, But the point is, nobody cares enough. And why? So he says, you would have been better off to be a miscarriage than to live that long and have that many kids and then nobody even bother to bury you. Just wherever you fall, that's it. Nobody gives a rip. Rip. (laughs) Choice of words, rest in peace. They don't give you a rest in peace. For he comes in with vanity and departs in darkness and his name shall be covered with darkness. Uh, If that's the kind of reputation that we have by the time we die, uh, it really wasn't much worth living, right? (laughs) What was the point? If you haven't lived in such a way to make at least somebody care, and I suppose he had seen this, because he says it's pretty common for human beings not to produce much that is worth having. I've been to a burial or two. Well, not a burial. I guess it was a county, either the county buried or the cremation. I'm not sure. It was way back 50 years ago where there was a church member. uh, No, I guess it was a prospective member. I've been visiting several times, and he died. He had no relatives. So the coroner and I were the only people there. No, nobody knew or cared. Or if they did, they knew him. I mean, he was in an apartment complex with a lot of people around. <clears throat> but when he died, it didn't even make a ripple of any kind. So I just said a quick prayer and away with him. Uh, turned him over to the coroner. So our lives need to be meaningful in some way. Verse 5, Moreover, he has not seen the sun. Well, now, nobody lives with eyes who hasn't seen the sun. So what does that mean? He was never enlightened. In other words, he departed in darkness of mind. He never understood what life was all about and what the rewards are and how he ought to treat other people so that they would care when he died. So he hasn't been enlightened, hasn't seen brightness and light and truth. nor known anything. Well, he's had facts in mind. He's lived and he's been able to do something. But he hasn't known anything of importance. That's all that matters. And that's pretty common, isn't it? Most people live on this earth for whatever amount of decades they survive. And they they die knowing nothing of the real purpose of human existence. They haven't seen the light. They just die in darkness. They'll be resurrected in the second resurrection and see some sunshine. They'll see some light. But they die not knowing anything, just as stupid as when they were born. 
says, even though he live a thousand years twice told. Well, there had been people in the past that had lived a thousand years, or real close to it, 969 or whatever it was, Methuselah, and others lived over 900 years. But he says, even if you live twice as long as those people before the flood, yet he has seen no good, do not all go to one place. So whether you live a very short life, or whether you live way, way beyond any imagination of length of life, still haven't learned anything, still haven't seen the sun. Did those people prior to the deluge ever get enlightened? No. Maybe they got a little bit of light when Noah floated off in the ark, but they still didn't understand why they were there. They were still a violent, ungodly society. And they just died like everybody else. In other words, this life needs to be put into perspective as being, in and of itself, a very futile exercise in temporariness. All the labor of man is for his appetite, and yet the appetite is not filled. How many truly fulfilled people have you ever known who were not, to one degree or another, dissatisfied about something. Nearly anybody you talk to at length will come up with some gripes and complaints and things that he wants or needs, he thinks he needs, or some frustrations with others around him, frustrations with himself. I don't know that you could ever find a truly, completely contented person on this earth no matter what they have or where they are or what because they all have troubles in life <coughs> so we labor to feed ourselves and yet we're never satisfied that's why lust and covetousness are such evil sins is because they raise a desire a want a wish that often cannot be fulfilled because it's an illegal wish and you can't do it anyway, so why think about it? Because all it does is frustrate you because you you have a case and want to and can't. And that's frustrating. So why go there? (laughs) You know, all it's going to do is frustrate you. For what has the wise more than the fool? What has the poor that knows to walk before the living. So you have those who are very poor and those who are living high on the hog, as we might say. I'd rather live high on the beef, but whatever. Uh, What's the difference between them, really? Because they all die, they all have their frustrations in life, and they all have health issues, getting old issues, dying issues. So he says, verse 9, to kind of encapsulate that, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also temporary vanity and vexation of spirit. Frustrating. Vexing. In other words, you have what you have. Better is what you can see that you already have with your own eyes than your mind wandering and fantasizing about what you would like to have. Because again, that is frustrating. So, 
simply be thankful for what you do have. A thankful attitude is a fairly contented attitude. I am thankful for what I have that my eyes can see and my hands can hold. Thankful is a wonderful state of mind. Covetousness and lust is a miserable state of mind. That's all he's saying here. You can let your eye wander anywhere you want it to wander, but if you can't have that, it immediately becomes a source of frustration. Even when people allow their minds to go there, and then they say, oh, okay, I'll go ahead and do that. And they do. You know what? They feel better and they feel satisfied for a little while because they got what they wanted. But then, if it was wrong, they'll begin to feel pangs of guilt. Their conscience will bother them. They'll begin to worry. They'll wonder what God thinks if they're converted. And then they have to go through this ordeal of sorrow and repentance, which is never fun. And if it was to fulfill some fleshly desire, whatever it might be, food, drink, sex, whatever it might be, uh, it's only about four hours to 24 hours or two days or three till the same desire pops up again. Now what? (laughs) So you go through this up and down thing and are never satisfied. So simply be thankful for what you have, even if it's only the breath of life and a shelter from the storm and something to pop the wrinkles on your belly out. You know? That's all you really need. And be thankful for it. Then if you're blessed with more, wonderful. But don't get into where your mind wanders trying to imagine or fantasize or dream about the things that you would like to have because it will frustrate you. Verse 10, That which has been is named already, and it is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. You just have to realize we are mankind, we are limited, we are vulnerable, we're hurtable and even killable. And we cannot fight, let's say, City Hall or others because there will always be those who are stronger, smarter, swifter than you. How many times has that played out in a Western movie where some kid thinks he's the fastest thing on earth with a gun, but there's always somebody faster. Always you wind up in trouble. So be content. Don't try to take things away from somebody because of lust, vanity, greed, jealousy and find out that you're not big enough to do it and you wind up in frustration and poverty. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? So there you have a cycle as well that if you desire this and you desire that and you manage somehow to catch up with the Joneses, Uh, What if the Joneses move forward and you have to catch up again and you're always playing catch up all your life and you're getting further and further in debt as you do it uh, and then you have a home and a vacation home and a boat and a plane and you have all those things. 
And all they do is increase your vanity. It just makes you feel like you're more important, more intelligent, more capable than the people around you. So your head blows up and your vanity gets up and you become more and more unlikable as time goes by because uh, people don't like the attitude that you've come to have as a result of having much. You cannot get away or get above lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, and envy and the fruits of the, or the works of the flesh there in Galatians 6. Because even if you were to have the character and rise above it, people would resent you. Uh, because all those human characteristics of not liking the wealthy or the smart or the intelligent or whatever come up in them, and you're disliked for it. Christ never did anything wrong, and yet he was as disliked as anybody on earth ever was. <laughs> you know? A lot of the pro- problem of the Pharisees were they wanted to be important, and they could see somehow through their vanity that he was more important than they were. So they were jealous and mean and eventually killed him for doing nothing but good. For who knows what is good for man in this life? You know, people, well, we had the hippie movement here in the 60s. I'm looking for myself. I've lost myself. I've got to find myself. That's what this is saying. Who knows what is good for a man? So we look at society, and they could see that there were things in society back then, in that revolution that occurred in the 60s. They could see things weren't good. The establishment wasn't good. So they started looking for something better. And they looked at all kinds of drugs, LSD and this and that, trying to find a better way than their parents had. And some of them are still running around in long gray hair looking for themselves because they're old hippies and they they haven't found themselves yet. So who knows what's good for man in this life? People are always trying to sort out, what's the best thing for me to do? Where should I go? Where should I be? Where should I work? What should my focus be? And apart from God and a fixation on the future... They don't find it. And even if they do get where they thought they wanted to be, they're often discontent. I've seen statistics on how many people hate their jobs. And it's way up there. Way over half hate the job that they have. I think it's like 70% or something don't like their job. Well, if you don't like your job and that's when you spend your day, you're not a very happy person. And if you change jobs, you're not going to get any happier because... Happiness is a state of the mind and the heart. It's not a state of the job or a state of the union. People think Texas is happiness or whatever. No, it's not. A lot of frustrated people there, just like they are in Mississippi and Wisconsin. It's not a state of the union. It's a state of mind. And you have to control your feelings and your emotions and bridle them and keep them in check in order to avoid the frustration and vexation. Lust or dreaming of things out of your reach will never make you happy. All the days of his vain life shall he spend as a shadow. For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? So he says your life will be like 
living in clouds. Uh, you, you really can't see. Now, what does a, a cloud up in the sky can be pretty uh, beautiful. But what about when you have your head in the clouds? I've been up on mountains where I was enveloped in clouds and couldn't see. And it's a very miserable experience after a little while. Even on flat land, you've driven through fog, which is nothing but a cloud, and couldn't see. So he says, your life will be like a shadow <coughs> if you can't find out where you're headed in life. For who can tell a man what shall be after him? You don't know the future. Uh, in the New Testament, it even expresses you don't know what tomorrow will bring. So, <coughs> the best laid plans of men and mice. We better find out something that's beyond this life. Because as he says here, this life in itself is simply a futility. So let's not get sidetracked. Let's stay focused on why we're here. Focused on the future. Focused on the resurrection and the kingdom of God. <coughs> because that's the only thing that isn't vanity and leads to futility and death. Chapter 7, then. A good name is better than precious ointment. Now, they gave Christ frankincense and myrrh, uh, all the precious ointments, perfumes, and so on. Now, what, as you look back now, was the greatest about Christ? Was it His good name that never sinned? Or was it those precious ointments and perfumes and various things that they brought to him? He had those things. People think he didn't have anything because he said at one point he didn't have a pillow to lay his head on. They did sleep out a great deal. But there are scriptures that show that he and the apostles did have their own homes. He had a house. <laughs> he just wasn't always there to use it. So he was often out sleeping on the ground as he traveled about. So he had the things, and he probably also was quite wealthy. I think his uh, father was, and his uncle, and uh, he had very, very fine, expensive clothes that they parted when he died. So he had blessings of physical things. Uh, he wasn't a homeless vagabond, as a lot of people might picture him. But what, what endures... His good name, his sinlessness, is what lasts forever and ever. And the day of death is better than the day of, man, of one's birth. When you're born, you've done nothing. You've done no good on earth. And when you die, uh, you've lived X many years. You've had opportunity to do good, to serve others to perhaps raise a family and hopefully they're good upstanding citizens who were reared properly and, and have a sense of responsibility about them. So maybe you've accomplished something good in your life. But you will also have suffered a lot of trouble in that life, no matter who. You will have probably have to go through the death of father, mother, children even, uh, aunts, uncles, grandparents, uh, maybe some tragic deaths, miscarriages, babies that died crib death or whatever might have happened. 
you're going to have gone through a lot of distress and trouble and pain in life. Any human being will have. So in that sense, the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. Your troubles are over. The day you're born, your troubles are all ahead of you. And then if there's a resurrection, the day of your death is certainly better than the day of your birth because hopefully your salvation is secured. Verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. All right, the Sabbath is a feast day, and we'll have a potluck here in a little bit, and we will enjoy it a great deal. Now, when I say potluck, you might begin to drool down your chin a little bit and think, boy, I wish he'd shut up and we could get on with that. We look forward to that. But I just announced we're also going to have a fast. Did that make you drool? I doubt it. It probably winced a little bit. But he says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Where are you going to learn the most? Trouble will teach you more than a fine time and a good evening by far. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. So we're all going, we're headed for the house of mourning. When you're on your deathbed and you know you're about to die, you have gone to the house of mourning. You're already mourning for yourself before you even die in most cases. And others are starting to mourn for you as well. So, uh, when do people learn? They learn in adversity. They learn in facing death. They learn in disease. They learn in trouble. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. You know, you reflect and you think and you ponder when there's trouble. And when it's just party time, happy, happy, you don't think too much about deeper things because you're just enjoying the moment. So those times when mourning and sorrow come is when we learn. What did God do to the church? He blew it all apart and put it in in confusion and disarray and frustration and doubt and futility. Why? Why? To make us think, to make us mourn, to make us ponder our paths. And most, basically, are flippant about that and are just simply trying to rebuild that which God was unhappy with. And that's not doing them any good. When you find yourself spewed out of Christ's mouth, that is a time for deep reflection deep study of His Word and deep prayer to find out what went wrong. Why did this happen? It is chastening. And God chastens every son whom He loves. So all this trouble is because God so dearly loves us that He did this to us. Let's not forget that. When we have been chastened like we have, it's because God loves us. And He wants us to straighten out and become more lovable. Not just try to keep doing what we've been doing that wasn't making Him happy in the first place. 
So the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of laughter. You don't learn much by laughter. Now, you can have relief. You can have a little downtime and maybe laugh and joke and cut up. And those things are good. Uh, Even the Proverbs say that uh, laughter does good like a medicine. Uh, So we should laugh. We should have times of levity. But that should not characterize our lives. We shouldn't be living a life just seeking fun and laughter, uh, as many, many in this world do. Verse 5, It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. You're better off having somebody who is wise tell you off, try to straighten you out, try to correct your path, That is far better than being among people where you can laugh and cut up and just have a good time. But boy, do we resist that, do we not? We do not like correction. We do not like anybody to tell us that our path is not what it ought to be. Our vanity comes up, our back comes up, we bristle, we reject, we blame it on somebody else, whatever. We do not like to be corrected, whether it's God or man. But he says here, we're much better off being chewed out by a wise man than having fun with a bunch of fools that don't know what's going on. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity and temporary. The the prodigal son was a fool. And he went out and spent his money and had all kinds of good times and laughter and drunkenness and all the things that he did. And uh, then he realized eating with the pigs when when that's over isn't all that happy. Have you ever heard small twigs uh, crackling under a pot? They pop and break and make noise as they burn. So is the laughter of the fool. He does not know where he's headed, what he's going, what life's all about. He's just having a good time. This also is vanity. Surely oppression makes a wise man mad, drive you crazy. And a gift destroys the heart. People give you gifts, you give them gifts, and first thing you know, it destroys purpose, goal. Uh, You're compromised by it because when they give you a gift, often there are strings attached and they want something in return. Uh, God says if you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Just serve and give and do for others. And don't have any strings attached. But a lot of people keep score. Uh, If they do good, uh, they remember it. They repeat it. They go over it in their mind, the things that they did that were good. And then they are frustrated because they don't get back what they gave. Well, people don't do anything for me. I'm always helping them. And they don't do a thing for me. Wrong attitude. Wrong heart. Wrong approach because you're not supposed to let your right hand know what your left hand does. That's Christ's own words. 
but people tend to keep score. What does it do? It frustrates them when they don't receive back what they gave. Now, he says, cast your bread on the waters and it'll return, but you don't keep score and chafe until it does return. It'll just frustrate you. You know, that's, that's the, the old syndrome you get in when people are exchanging gifts at Christmas and so on. Uh, well, I got them a more expensive gift than they got me. So people get jealous and frustrated. And then you give somebody something because you were thinking of them and loving them and had good attitude toward them. And then you see that they took it back to the store the day after and didn't appreciate it. You know, there's... It's, it's all summed up right here. We like to get something in return. But that's not the attitude we should have. Because that, too, is covetousness and lust, as we talked about earlier, that brings frustration. If you feel the score is lopsided, you're frustrated. I lost my place here now. I've got to get back up here. <clears throat> Verse 8, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud or the hasty in spirit. Now, patience is a wonderful thing if you have it. If you don't have it, you're frustrated. Impatience is a frustration. So we have to train ourselves to be patient. You know, there are probably certain things that people do that frustrate you, or the things they don't do that frustrate you, because you want it done now, and you want it done your way, and if they don't do it that way, you get frustrated. That's what impatience is. Expecting people to do what you want, and maybe they don't want to do what you want. Maybe they have a different goal and purpose. Maybe they have something else they want to do right now rather than what you want done right now. So what do you do? You frustrate yourself by fretting over and worrying over and being discontent over what others might be doing. So he says be patient. It's better than being upset all the time. And realize that when a thing is over and done... Uh, it's accomplished, and it's better than the beginning of it and the frustration and the things you go through to make it happen. But we get impatient and want it done right now. So it's better when it's finally finished and done and you're not impatient anymore. It's, you know, it's, it's accomplished. Then he says, take this over into attitude. Be not hasty in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. If you see someone who has anger issues, uh, upset with others, flies off the handle, has a violent temper, uh, you're looking at a fool or a partial fool at least, at least in that area of life. What good does anger do? What, what good does anger do? Usually, no good. And usually, it's destructive to you. It's the one who is angry that is upset. It's not, you, it's not the one that you're angry at. 
I've had people that hated me with a passion. You know who it bothered? Them. Didn't really bother me all that much. Bothered them. They're the ones that were angry and mad and frustrated and hated me. Okay, fine. There's a saying I may have quoted here, I don't know, in time past, but one that I've tried to remember. It says, whether you love me or hate me, it's all on my side. If you love me, I'm always in your heart. And if you hate me, I'm always on your mind. <laughs> you know? Doesn't bother the one that's loved or hated. It either helps or bothers the one who has the hatred. They're the ones upset. So don't hate and don't be angry. Because you're a fool if you do. That's foolish behavior. It's not the hated that has the problem. It's the hater. Always upset. Always frustrated. That's foolish. Height of foolishness. Say not you, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. We look back maybe at a particular generation that we thought was the best time to live and say, boy, I wish I'd lived then. <clears throat> you know, it wasn't any better than what you have today. <clears throat> it really wasn't. There were times in my life when I was a kid and I'd read the westerns and all this stuff and Boy, I, I wished I'd lived back in the days of the hunters and the trappers and uh, exploring the West and taming the West. I thought that would have been a golden age to live in. At the time, I wasn't really thinking about Indians cutting you and shooting you and, and uh, whacking your hair off. <clears throat> I wasn't thinking of trappers who went out in 30 and 40 degree below weather with less than adequate clothing and trapping beavers and minks and various things and falling through the ice at 30, 40 below zero and laying on the bank trying to build a fire and keep from freezing to death. And I wasn't thinking about how they often ran out of food and then they ate the beaver carcasses or whatever they had caught, and they had spoiled, and they died of food poisoning, and uh, a myriad of things that were very, very difficult during those times. It's easy to be comfortable and dream of a different time that you thought was better. But was it really? <laughs> when I think of some of those things and have read some of those stories, I think, well, maybe that wasn't such a great time to live anyway. I might not have lived past 30 and died a very miserable, wretched, frustrating death, painful death. So, hey, it doesn't do any good to look back. Living in the past does not help a thing. Move forward. And we do it in our lives, don't we? So many people are so busy dwelling on the past. Past losses, past sins, past friendships, past jobs, you name it. They can't get over things that happened in the past. Now, this is an emotional one, but I've, I've known women, for instance, that may have lost two or three or four or five children to a miscarriage. 
And in this life, they never seem to really get over it. It's something that plagues them all through their life. Now, it's a very emotional, very deleterious situation that they go through. But at some point, you simply have to turn loose and say, God knows what He is doing. He is sovereign. Those children will be in the second resurrection. They will have an opportunity to grow up. Now, I don't believe Herbert Armstrong was right when he said that a child had to draw the breath of life in order to be in the second resurrection. The reason I don't believe that is correct is abortion would not be murder. Abortion would be okay. Once that baby is formed and begins growing in that mother's womb, it is a, an unborn human being. And the symbolism, spiritually, is the same. We are embryos, right? We are not yet born into the kingdom of God. We're spiritual embryos, still in the womb of our mother, the church. And if we become a spiritual miscarriage, we're in trouble, aren't we? We die. And there's no hope beyond that for us. Now, if a baby is in that mother's womb, it has lived, it hasn't sinned, it hasn't done anything wrong, and yet it's, in that sense, alive. Now, the difference in the story is that if that baby dies and is miscarried, it still has its chance in the second resurrection where we as a spiritual miscarriage have gone a step beyond that and there's no redeeming us. So that's where all analogies break down. Just as marriage is an analogy of Christ and His bride. But that one breaks down, doesn't it? Because Christ and His bride are going to live forevermore in happiness and peace uh, as humans dream that they lived happily ever after. They did not always or rarely live totally happily, and they certainly never lived ever after, because death occurs. Now, in Christ's marriage, they will live happily ever after, no pain, no fear, no insecurity, no death, none of those things, and ever after. So, human marriage is only an analogy that breaks down because it can never fulfill the ultimate spiritual purpose. So, a baby being uh, (coughs) engendered is the same to a point. But then the analogy breaks down because physical has its limits. But living in the past doesn't do you any good. So what does a woman who's been through that do? She goes to God, she recognizes His sovereignty, she recognizes our degeneracy and our body's incapacity because of all that it's been through or our ancestors went through to in this life see a child through to its birth. Or maybe the child is born with all kinds of defects. Sometimes we do that ourselves with thalidomide or whatever. 
and people have had babies born without legs and flippers and all kinds of problems. And it still happens to this day in many, many different ways and times. Well, what we have to come to grips with, we sinned, and every one of us have since, and we have created for ourselves a deplorable situation where bad things happen. But we have to truly believe there is a living God who created everything, and that He loves us, and He's going to make it all turn out right in the long run. All things work together for good for those who love God and keep His commandments. So we don't focus on those emotionally disastrous things that have occurred. It does us no good. We have to pick up and move on. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You don't live in the past, you move forward. Before my wife died, I talked to God about it because I could see that you can let her die, you can heal her, you can let her die and resurrect her, you can do anything you want. But you are sovereign, and I accept whatever you do. And I will not get angry with you, frustrated with you. Why should I? You are sovereign, and you know what is best in the long run for every one of us. And I cannot live in the past, cry over spilled milk or whatever. Sure, we grieve, and sure, we're, we miss, and we're lonely. But we can't live in the past. What does that earn you? <laughs> Frustration, misery, loneliness? No. We look forward to hope of the resurrection. We look forward to the blessings of God. Now, sure, we need to cast back in our past now and then at lessons hopefully learned so that we don't repeat them again. But don't live back there. Don't stay back there. Move forward. What did God tell Moses at the Red Sea? Command the people that they move forward. What were the people doing? They were looking back saying, Oh my God, oh Moses, you brought us out here to die. We had it better back there. They weren't thinking of making bricks, but the leeks and onions of Egypt. They'd forgotten the brick making, and they were thinking about the food they had. Don't let the people think about where they came from. Let them move forward. Well, what was forward? The Red Sea. <laughs> move forward. Head out into the sea. How far are you going to get, blub blub? Don't look back. I think I remember a woman who did that. Pillar of salt. Looking back doesn't earn you any nickels. Get over it. I've run into people. I, I remember down in Miami, I came across two or three uh, ex-prostitutes. And they were having a very, very difficult time dealing with life because of the wrongs, the sins, the broken marriages and all the things that happened in their lives and they had such a very low feeling about themselves 
and a total fatalistic idea about ever being happy again. And what could I do for them? I couldn't change anything in their past. Sad, sordid stories. Terrible feelings of inadequacy and inferiority and self-hate. I couldn't do a thing about it. All I could do was coach them to find a future and a goal of something important and move toward it and quit thinking about their past. Look to the life of Christ that was lived to forgive your sins and truly believe that His life was worth more than yours and move forward. It does us no good to think about the things of our past other than to keep from repeating them. I mean, when you get in a situation where you might be tempted to repeat it, then remember what happened when you did it. But don't spend your time thinking of the past. It does, it does you no good whatsoever. Think of the future. Think of the hope. What are the three greatest things? Remembering the past, thinking about how wretched I've been. No, I don't remember those. Faith, hope, and love. Hope in the future. Don't dwell on the past. I don't care who you are. Nearly every human being, or probably every human being that has ever walked, has sat around and worried about the past in some form or fashion. Coulda, shoulda, woulda. Big deal. Can't go back. Can't replow it. Can't re-swim it. Can't relive it. It's done. It's over. Past. If you can't do anything about it, move on. Do something with what you can do something about. That is only today and tomorrow. Okay? Get it? No. I'm just yapping. Get it. Think about it. Stop it. <laughs> you know? It's easy for me to sit here and say this. It's hard for you to go do it. Because your mind has been in some of those ruts maybe for nearly all your life. People still worry about what they said to somebody that made them mad and they lost their best friend in the third grade. Get over it. I mean, that's a silly example, but we do worry about some silly things that we can't do a thing about. It's done. It's past. Go to God. Ask for forgiveness. What did David do? There's a very wonderful example. He killed a man, stole his wife, had the baby as a result of the adultery, and then God chastened him by causing the baby to get sick, and David fell on his face and prayed. And when that child died, he heard his servants mumbling in the background, and he realized that they would not be there muttering and mumbling and wondering what to say if the baby wasn't dead. And David did something almost unheard of at that point, something that absolutely mystified everybody who was there witnessing it. He got up, 
took a shower, put on clean clothes, and went on about his business. A baby that he had watched grow in that womb for nine months and be born and hold in his arms had just died. David got up, said, I got God's decision. God's decision was let it die. I will not live in the past. I will not mourn. I will move forward. People couldn't understand that. They kind of, what's going on? David's moving on. He's living in hope. He prayed that prayer in Psalm 51 and said, Cleanse me, purify me, and I'll move on, and I'll preach your great name in the great congregation. He did not look back. He looked forward. Now, that's all I can tell a person who tends to look back and be so sorry and so frustrated by the things of the past that they can't seem to get over. David got over it and moved forward because he got God's answer. You know, there's a story in Ezekiel 24 where God said Israel was so sinful. He says, Ezekiel, I want you to get a big pot and put it on the fire and heat it up to boiling. He said, I want you to cut up an animal and in pieces and throw it in the pot. And I want you to boil it until there's nothing left but scum. Even the bones were to be boiled out. Just scum, like a bathtub ring on the pot. I want you to boil it to there because that is what my people Israel are like. That's what the church was like. And we got thrown in the fire in little pieces, spittle, whichever analogy you want to use. And then he told Ezekiel, I am going to take from you the light of your life, your wife. I'm going to cause her. God caused her to die. I will kill your wife, is what God told Ezekiel. And I don't want you to mourn. I want you to speak to the people and tell them that your wife is a type of me and Israel. Now, Christ's bride is almost dead today, right? Where's the church of God? It's almost dead. Now, God's going to resurrect it. He's going to bring 10% of those who will be faithful to Him together to rebuild, to resurrect the wife of Christ and to give her an attitude of thankfulness and love and service to God and loyalty to Him. So he took Ezekiel's... To him, she must have been very important because he says, I'm taking the light of your life. And he told Ezekiel then, do not mourn. Get on with life. Get on with the job you've been given to do. So even, and most of us here are widows or widowers, get on with life. Don't live in the past. Now the memories are there, aren't they? And you can grieve to a certain amount, I'm sure. But don't let that dominate your life and your thinking. We're supposed to move on. If your mate died and they were converted and they'll be in the first resurrection... 
Should you be looking back and frustrating yourself over what you do not now have and drowning yourself in loneliness and frustration? No. Hope is one of the three biggies. You don't look at the past. You look at the hope of the resurrection. You look forward. Always look up to He who can do something about it. When my wife lay dying, I could do nothing about it except pray to God that His sovereignty be given. And whatever decision He made, I would live with. And I told Him that. So now, I am doing all I can to move forward. Not forget her, because I love her. But look forward to the day she's in the resurrection. That's my hope. Okay? Sorry. But we have to move on. We have to look forward. And that's all I could do for any of those people who were that frustrated and so miserable because of their past. You can't do a thing about the past. Move on. All right, let me try to find where I was here. Uh, Yeah, verse 10. What is the cause that the former days were better than these? (laughs) Your your former days weren't so so great or you wouldn't be frustrated about them. Make today and tomorrow better. That's all you can do. Concentrate there, not on the past. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. He brings up that same uh, analogy again that he had up in chapter 6, verse 5. People who live and never see the sun. So he says, wisdom is good. But those that are really going to profit are those who are enlightened, who see the sun. They're looking at the light, not the darkness. That's what we've just been talking about. Don't look back at the darkness of your past. Look forward to the sun in the future. For wisdom is a shadow, it should be translated, and money is a shadow. It's just a shadow of the brightness and the light that is to come. But the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to them that have it. Is it wise to live in the past? No, it's foolish. Something you can do nothing about except vex and frustrate yourself. So wisdom to look forward in hope gives life. Consider the work of God. For who can make that straight which he has made crooked? You know, the limbs on a tree are pretty crooked, aren't they? A tree is beautiful. Wonderful work of art of God. But it isn't in straight lines. It's got branches growing every direction. And I don't know how much you'd have to mess with the DNA, but you can't straighten it out and make every limb straight. It's not going to happen. You can't straighten a river out and make it perfectly straight. It has curves and bends. And... You got a crooked life. You got a crooked character. And you can't make it straight. He has to work his salvation in you. You can only grow and overcome and look to him and his spirit to help you make tomorrow better than yesterday. But only he can straighten us out. Every one of us, on the day that we part from this physical life, are still going to have false 
and wrong attitudes and deficiencies. Because the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, who can know it? And you can't straighten it all out. It will require a change in the way that that brain works. It will have to go from mortal to immortal. It will have to be an absolute miracle of God that you no longer have a wretched human mind. So nobody has lived and died with anything but a wretched human mind. Even the most righteous people who've lived except Christ. He'll he'll, he'll, uh, mention that here again in a minute. So, but we do have to overcome. We have to, by His Spirit, get away from sin as much as we can. And bad attitudes. Verse 14, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, think, ponder, consider. God also has set the one over against the other. So in life, you're going to have prosperity and you're going to have adversity. Back to back, right together. You can never get away totally from either. And in this life, adversity usually outlives or outweighs the prosperity that we enjoy. In the end, or to the end, that man should find nothing after him. Realize that this is it. Uh, In other words, this life is equal to futility. That's all this life is. Because it ends in death. You didn't bring anything into the world, and then you accrue and acquire certain things, and then when you die, they're gone. And unless there's something beyond this life, it is utter futility. All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongs his life in his wickedness. There was in a song, oh, decades ago, I remember, it says, I'm going to live forever if the good die young. In other words, I'm a sinner, and uh, I may live a long time on this earth, but if the good die young, uh, I'll have to live a long time. Because it doesn't matter in this life. You can, you can be a righteous man, and sometimes your life's cut short. What about Stephen? That deacon in the New Testament, who gave such a fiery sermon to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He died young. (laughs) There was a righteous man who died proclaiming the glory of God and got pounded to death with rocks for his trouble as a young man. The good died young. Some of those Pharisees probably got into their 80s or 90s before they died, and they were wicked. But who's going to be in the first resurrection? Stephen. And where are the Pharisees going to be? They'll be way beyond the last table at the wedding supper, way beyond the millennium, and come up in the second resurrection and have a chance at a lower position in the kingdom of God for all their vanity and self-greatness. Be not over-righteous, 
neither make yourself overwise. In your own mind, don't think about how wonderful and how righteous you are and how wise you are, wiser than anyone around you, especially those around you, because they're certainly not as smart as you are, and they're certainly not as righteous as you are, and you even know why, because you can point out their faults and weaknesses, and of course they can't see yours, because you really don't have any that are egregious. Uh, you're, You're not too bad. But, oh my, look at this filth around me. So we have these imaginations and fantasies and ideas and judgments that we make. No, don't go there. Don't, uh, don't put yourself above others and be self-righteous and overmuch thinking you're wise. Why should you destroy yourself? <coughs> thinking of the evil of others, putting yourself above them, and the vanity and ego that goes with that is eventually going to bring you down. And it's not your fault. Your problems are not somebody else's fault. They're your fault. For the most part. Now, Satan will lay stuff on you, and sometimes other people will lay stuff on you. But for the most part, the great preponderance of time, we suffer for our own attitudes and mistakes. Christ is a wonderful example of not being that way, but uh, we fall far short of him. At the same time, be not overmuch wicked, neither be foolish. Why should you die before your time? If you say, well, I can't be good, so I'll be bad. Well, that doesn't work out too well either. It is good that you should take hold of this. Grasp this principle. Do what's right, but don't get proud of yourself. Don't brag in your own mind or to anybody else about all the good and wonderful things you do and are. Take hold of it. Think about it. Grab it. Hang on to it. Yea, also from this withdraw not your hand. For he that fears God shall come forth of them all. There's the beginning of wisdom. Blowing yourself up because of your inferiority complex to think that you're more than you are or better than those around you will end in frustration. So, fear God. Keep His commandments. Don't keep score. Don't compare yourselves among yourselves, for it is not wise. That, in essence, was quoted from this in the New Testament. Do not compare yourselves among others. There is no one who has ever walked the face of this earth who has not compared himself to others. So we've all been fools or partial fools, haven't we? Well, what do you do? You stop it. You quit looking for people's faults. You quit judging them. You quit condemning them. You quit seeing their errors or trying to decide what their errors might be. Get the beam out of your own eye, Christ said. Don't worry about the moat in somebody else's. Of course, if you think that you've already got the beam out of your eye and you can already now see to get the moat out of others, I have no hope for you. Because I'll guarantee you, you don't have the beam out of your own eye yet. You still compare yourselves among yourselves. We're fools when we do that. 
because we lift ourselves above somebody else and we live in our vanity and our ego and stroke ourselves and pat ourselves on the back because we may not be much better than but we're at least better than that's stupid take hold of it fear God compare yourself to God there's your only valid comparison compare yourself to God and realize you have a long long way to go and be so busy trying to be like God you don't have time to worry about whether somebody else is or not get it Got it? Good. But we probably didn't, so let's move on. Hey, just do it. Change it. Fix it. Quit going there. It's what God says. 19. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city. You can have ten good friends that are going to have your back and protect you and... Wisdom will do you more good than ten highly armed friends. For there is not a just man upon earth that does good and does not sin. They have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. This was quoted in the New Testament in several ways too. Also take no heed to all words that are spoken, lest you hear your servant curse you. For oftentimes also your own heart knows that you likewise have cursed others. You know, we don't need to know everything that people say. We don't have to eavesdrop on their conversations. We don't have to imagine what they might have said or thought. You know, people are going to have bad attitudes. People are going to say things about you that you wouldn't like. Do you have to know all their attitudes? Do you need to know everything they've said about you? I see people do it all the time. Well, so-and-so mentioned you the other day. What'd they say? What'd they say? What else did they say? Don't be bothered by it. What did he tell Ezekiel? He says, they'll, be, they'll still be talking about you behind the wall. They'll say your voice is good and you have a great message, but they'll be whispering behind your back around the wall. So what should you do? Go around the wall and try to hear everything saying they're bad about you? Nah. Just be concerned about what God thinks about you. Don't worry about what other people think about you. doesn't do you any good. What good does it do? It just makes you have a bad attitude toward them. And when you've got a bad attitude toward them, what's your frame of mind? Bad attitude. Doesn't do a bit of good. So don't try to find out. Don't listen to everything that's said. Don't worry about it. You will hear them curse you. Then it's going to make you upset. What good does that do? You know you've had attitudes about people. You know you've spoken and stabbed people in the back. So if they're doing that, again, maybe you need to get the knife out of their back and the beam out of your own eye. All this have I proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Now, we all would like to think we're intelligent and wise and all-knowing, but we find out we get in situations where we really don't know what to do or say. Well, I'm out of time here. Let's, uh, let's stop right at that point for today. Uh, beginning with verse 24 later.